Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast, evidence-informed, practical-based. It's season two, this is episode number 41, and as the clocks go back this weekend in the UK and next week in the USA and Canada, it's the perfect time to talk sleep. And today, Dr. Nora Simpson from Stanford University Medical School sits down to talk all things sleep. In this episode, Nora will discuss why many people and athletes still struggle with poor sleep quality and quantity despite all the emphasis on sleep in the last five years or so. She'll also discuss her recent paper, Optimizing Sleep to Maximize Performance, Implications and Recommendations for Elite Athletes. She'll dive into how lack of sleep impacts pain tolerance, injury risk, risk of illness, and even the potential effects of altitude training on sleep quality. Nora will also share some sleep roadblocks that she commonly sees in athletes, her favorite tools and tactics to get sleep back on track, and where she sees the evolution of sleep research headed in the next decade. Always fantastic insights here from Nora. Really appreciate her taking the time out. You can check out the links to the research paper discussed here, as well as a podcast summary in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. If you're interested in more on the topic of sleep, we've had some other phenomenal guests on the podcast Season 1, Episode 4 with Dr. Amy Bender of the Canadian Sport Institute in Calgary. Season 2, Episode 10 with Dr. Ian Dunikin on jet lag and caffeine use. Season 2, Episode 11 with Dr. Sheree Ma and her work in professional sport. As well as recently Season 2, Episode 28 with Dr. Michele Lestella from Down Under on athlete chronotypes and performance. So you can definitely binge listen to all these sleep experts on YouTube, iTunes, or your favorite podcasting platform. And while you're there, please subscribe and you won't miss any of the incredible, incredible guests lined up for the rest of this year. All right, before we get started, a quick word from this episode's sponsor, Totem Sport. Totem Sport is the world's only 100% natural supplement. No sugar, no artificial flavors, absolutely nothing added. What is it? Totem Sport is the world's purest deep ocean mineral water. Collected from natural algae blooms in the Atlantic Ocean, Totem Sport is the only sports drink supplement that contains all 78 naturally occurring minerals and trace elements. The research on deep ocean mineral water is ramping up, a recent study highlighting its major promise as the optimal rehydrating strategy over spring water and other sports drinks. Totem Sport is the evolution of hydration, the world's only 100% natural sport drink, tested and approved by Informed Sport and Informed Choice. Check out totemsport.co.uk and defy the norm. Okay, let's get things rolling. Season 2, Episode 41. Enjoy. My guest today is Dr. Nora Simpson, Clinical Assistant Professor at the Stanford University School of Medicine with a clinical focus in psychology, behavioral sleep medicine, and athlete well-being. Nora, I really appreciate you taking the time today. Happy to be here, Mark. Terrific. Well, before we dive into sleep, athletic performance, and some of your uh, research, can you tell the listeners a little bit more about how you got into psychology, the sleep medicine side, and athlete health? Sure. Um, well, I have 
always been interested in this intersection between psychology and biology and psychology and medicine. Um, and so that has kind of been the, the focus of my initial interest in this field. And I ended up in sleep almost by happenstance. Um, I was really interested in health psychology. And during graduate school, I actually needed to switch graduate advisors because mine went to a different school. And the best fit for me was um, a person who was a really well-regarded sleep researcher. And Fantastic. I have to admit, at that point, I was not completely sold on sleep. Um, but I decided to give it a go. And it turns out, you know, it's fascinating and has held my attention um, for the duration of my career to date. So it's an awesome field to be in. There's always new things that are being learned and discovered and so many different types of people contribute to the field of sleep from physicians to physicists to psychologists. It's really an interesting area to be in. Yeah, 100%. Uh, that's uh, definitely really interesting just to see all the different uh, takes and research out there. And um, of course, in some of your research, you know, we obviously see that greater sleep loss equals greater performance impairments. And of course, that occurs in a dose-dependent manner. Um, mm -hmm. And I know this is a tricky question here, but from 30,000 feet, you know, athletes nowadays know they should get more sleep, but still struggle with low sleep quality, low sleep quantity. Um, you know, despite all the emphasis in the last five or 10 years or so, you know, why is that? What's going on there? Well, I think there's, there's two main things at play. One is that even though we know because people tell us that not getting enough sleep really impairs our performance, we are really bad as a species at being able to, to recognize our own level of impairment. Um, some scientists have run parallel studies comparing amounts of sleep loss to performance deficits from alcohol use because there's you know that kind of nice parallel with when you have a little bit to drink you may not necessarily realize how impaired you are um so i think part of this is really not feeling the level of impairment ourselves and that makes it hard to motivate to change your behavior um from another side you know sleep is something that gets the short end of the stick so often in our lives. We have so many things that must be done in the 24-hour day that sleep ends up at least feeling like it's something that you can just squeeze away, trim a few minutes off, and get those last two things done. Um, and it doesn't have that sense of urgency, the deadlines that oftentimes our other priorities do. Yeah, absolutely. It definitely sort of gets squeezed there between uh, all the other, between the training for athletes and whether it's school work, everything else. And of course, with social media and Netflix and, and whatnot, it's definitely um, not a lot of time left in the day. And of course, in your recent paper, Optimizing Sleep to Maximize Performance, Implications and Recommendations for Elite Athletes, uh, you talk just about that, about the idea of performance impairments are found after 17 to 19 hours of wakefulness. And that equivalent of the blood alcohol content of 0.05%, which I think in some states or provinces would be legally intoxicated. And of course, 28 hours of wakefulness equivalent to 0.1%, uh, 0.10% uh, of blood alcohol. So basically legally drunk. Um, I have three small kids at home, so this 
for me helps to explain a lot, but uh, could you talk about the effects of sleep loss on neurocognitive performance, so specifically areas around attention, uh, executive function, and learning? Sure. Well, that is a really diverse and and broad area that you're talking about, Um, and there's a lot of research in that area, but very broadly, we do see that all of those domains of neurocognitive performance um, are negatively impacted by insufficient sleep. Um, so, attention—you know—really important for athletes who need to be focused during games or during a performance, um, and um, the executive or higher-level functioning, making decisions you know, applying strategies, flexibly thinking. Um, These are all things that even a night or two of sleep deprivation or this idea of sleep restriction, not getting enough sleep, you know, multiple days on end can really add up and have a negative impact in these domains. I think a lot of athletes and definitely a lot of my clients, and I think everyone's guilty of this, this idea of catching up on sleep. You know, don't worry, I'm going to get some more on the weekend. I'll throw some more naps in. Um, You know, can an athlete catch up on sleep after running low, say, from maybe a training camp or travel or whatever it might be? Yeah, I mean, I think there's some some nuance here. Certainly, if there's a kind of one-off short-term period where you're not getting enough sleep, you know, you certainly can um, either catch up or at least kind of regain normal day-to-day functioning with several nights of sufficient sleep. Um, I think the real danger is kind of this idea of running on not getting enough sleep during the week and then trying to catch up on the weekends as kind of a standard operating system. Um, There's really new research coming out in this domain, and I've had the opportunity to be a part of some of it, um, that shows that you can't really catch up to the extent that we would like or hope um, with longer sleep on the weekends when you're restricting sleep during the week. Um, We recently published a paper looking at kind of impairments in pain modulation, showing that you will still have kind of changes in the underlying pain regulation physiology um, after two nights, for example, weekend nights of catch-up sleep after um, restricting sleep during the week when you measure that kind of a couple of weeks in a row on an ongoing basis. So that really, in my perspective, is where the danger lies. You really want to be working towards protecting enough time for sleep on a night-to-night basis that you can have the occasional variability and navigate that without too much trouble rather than trying to run on a really lean system where you're barely getting enough sleep on the week and trying to or thinking that you're catching up on the weekend and not really getting there because we know that there are so many negative effects of not getting enough sleep, athletic performance, health, and overall well-being. Yeah, very well said. I mean, definitely when people start redlining, you know, whether it's health and, you know, mood, anxiety, um, or as you mentioned, sort of performance and some of the physical performance metrics, obviously pain tolerance you mentioned, but what about things as well like injury risk, Um, or risk of illness. Can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. Those are two areas where there's um, 
not a ton of research, but the data that's out there is pretty compelling, um, showing that there's a the study done in adolescents showing that um, individuals who slept then less than eight hours a night were more than one and a half times more likely to experience a significant injury compared to those sleeping eight hours a night. Um, and, you know, injury, if you're an athlete, clearly no one wants to get injured, but this also has, you know, a significant impact on your life moving forward, whether it's kind of how you're spending your next six weeks or six months, um, but also, you know, clearly can have an impact on your, your future physical performance potential. Um, and so that's something that we really want to take seriously. And um, this seems to be a particular importance in younger populations. We don't have a lot of data in adults yet, but I would imagine that the relationships are similar. Um, and in terms of illness susceptibility, um, there have been some really interesting experimental studies where they actually have had healthy adults track their sleep um, and then come into a lab where they are inoculated with an active dose of cold virus. Um, these are very <laughs> willing volunteers. I'm I was going to sure say, it must be that's definitely taking it for science. That's great. I know. Um, you know, we, we fully kind of support those individuals, even if we may not choose to join them. Um, but the study found that individuals sleeping less than seven hours a night before the inoculation of this cold virus were three times more likely to develop a cold um, after this direct application of the cold virus than those sleeping eight hours or more. And we also see um, parallel findings when we look at actual vaccine vaccine responses. So if you are not getting a ton of sleep before you get a vaccination, you actually can have a um, blunted immune response to the vaccine. So I think this is particularly timely to be talking about as we're heading into cold and flu season um, because you know, sleep is one of the, you know, really few things you can do outside of, you know, good hand hygiene and getting vaccinated that you can concretely do that's really going to potentially have a significant impact on helping you stay healthy when, you know, your coworkers or your teammates are sneezing and coughing around you, you know, for the next few months. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's definitely a great one for the docs to uh, pay attention to as well. Easy to forget that they need to be you know, patients need to be in getting enough sleep to really maximize that efficacy of the vaccine, just like you said. And, um, you know, whether it's cold and flu season, whether it's, fam you know, people with little kids at home, I mean, that's one of those ones where everyone's sleeping less in the house. And so the, mm -hmm. you know, the, the illnesses just keep going around or as you mentioned, like yeah, there you go. Young athletes as well, like high school, college, not, not getting enough sleep and all of a sudden everyone's sort of succumbing. So it's amazing how, um, you know, simply just getting more sleep will be a, pretty big win for uh, on the immunity front and you know on the previous podcasts uh, on sleep had some experts like Dr. Amy Bender and Dr. Shri Ma and Dr. Ian Dunican on and talking a lot about different areas of performance but we mm -hmm. we didn't get to talk about the impact of altitude on sleep and obviously mm -hmm. altitude training is is massively popular especially with endurance athletes but you know we also see that with team sport athlete training camp style so you know what, what's the potential cost on the sleep front with altitude? Yeah. So, you know, in the, there's not a ton of studies right now, um, looking at sleep in athletes at altitude. Um, there are some studies in the general population showing that sleeping at altitude can negatively affect sleep architecture, um, and quality. 
Um, and if you do have a sleep disorder like obstructive sleep apnea, you may find um, that your symptoms are, are more severe at altitude. Um, so I think this is something that's really important to consider when you're um, kind of weighing the benefits of training at altitude. If you find as an individual that your sleep is really negatively impacted, um, you know, I would also kind of think more broadly than about kind of the impact of not sleeping well on your performance and your, your well-being. I think that this is an area that there's going to be um, more research coming out that's really going to help us understand the costs and benefits um, with a little bit more nuance. Right now, we have a little bit of this conflicting evidence where kind of training at altitude has, I think, a lot of benefits. Um, and we understand that there are some costs for sleep, but exactly how they interplay, um, I think, is an open question right now. Gotcha. And would you would you guess that potentially the longer you know an individual or a group stayed at altitude, potentially the the more the sleep would normalize? Is that reasonable to to assume, or perhaps not? Uh, I think it may, unless there's an underlying sleep disorder. Um, gotcha. I, I I think you know if you're someone who has some some sleep apnea, you know, I wouldn't expect that that to change, at least not in a kind of positive direction, um, with, with more time at altitude. Although I do think you potentially could habituate with respect to, um, with respect to some sleep parameters for sure. Terrific. Well, I know you do a lot of work and research with athletes and, uh, you know, you're currently, I believe, conducting a small pilot study, uh, that's geared toward developing an athlete specific, um, sleep health resource. Can you walk the listeners through a little bit of what you've been working on? Sure. I mean, I think this really speaks to how you open this discussion, Mark, in that we know that there's a lot of information out there and I think still more to come about how important sleep is for athletes. But data suggests that athletes really aren't sleeping that well and many of them aren't getting enough sleep, which left us with the question of, how can we help change this equation? And one of the questions we had is whether we're actually um, conveying this information about the importance of sleep in a way that's meeting the needs of the actual, um, in this case, student athletes at Stanford. So we're in the process of running focus groups to better understand um, what their concerns about their sleep is, how much they know about sleep and the relationship to athletic performance and what type of resources or support they themselves think would be helpful. Um, and from that data, we're hoping to develop a, um, a sleep health educational resource that's specifically geared towards a student athlete population. Um, and our hope is that if the resource that we can design is really kind of fitting some of the needs, the questions, providing the answers that athletes want, even though they may not know they want them before they read this, it may help change um, sleep behaviors for the better in this population. That's yeah, really interesting stuff. Um, it reminds me of a recent um, interview I had with the, our sports psychic, Canada basketball, Dr. Peter Jensen. And a little bit like you mentioned there, Nora, at the start of the interview, this idea of trying to influence people with sort of logic is not always the easiest um, 
thing to do. We don't really make decisions based on logic as much, do we? So this you know, emotion and seeing what people are, what's underneath some of that would be really interesting for me as well to see what's going on. And, you know, for yourself as in, you know, coming at this from a, as a psychologist, what are some of your tips or tools that you use to help to, you know, um, influence behavior change, whether it's sleep or whether it's something else? Um, you know, I think a lot depends on what brings a person to me? Um, it's, I think, challenging sometimes to to have someone come meet with you who's been sent by another provider, um, and they may not necessarily be as interested in changing their sleep or feel like they should do it but don't really want to. Um, and so in those cases, I think it's um, important to try to figure out if there are domains of that individual's life that they would like to be different. Um, whether it's, you know, this being focused on athletes, whether it's athletic performance or whether it is mood or overall well-being or work performance. And one of the beautiful things about sleep is that it's really related to all of these domains. So if I can draw a link between something that the person would like to have changed and sleep, then I have a little bit of an in to open the discussion about what it would be like if sleep improved and then sort of their kind of desired outcome would also change as well. So being able to hook those two things together, I think is really um, important. Absolutely. It's amazing how that um, can sometimes obviously be really obvious for the clinician or the coach or the practitioner. Um, but as you mentioned, the athlete you know, doesn't necessarily see it. And so making that link, it can be a really powerful way to, to get them to make some changes. For sure. And I think in um, in this situation, once you really identified that domain, this is a case where sometimes being able to describe some data about how we know that sleep is related to this particular domain or, you know, here's this study where we can extend sleep duration and look at improvement in, you know, free throw averages is really compelling. Um, whereas just this list of facts about why sleep is important generally may not be. Absolutely. And, um, if we continue down this road of sort of solutions, I know, you know, sleep tracking now, uh, especially with technology is becoming more and more popular, you know, for yourself, if someone is struggling with sleep, are there certain recommendations around whether it's pen and paper tracking or just obviously subjective or, or whether it's using some type of sleep technology to, to get a handle on a baseline. What are some of the, your thoughts there? Um, I think from a, like a very 10,000 foot perspective, um, tracking sleep in any way that allows you to do it consistently is the way to go. Um, to get just a very broad view of what's going on. Um, pen and paper gives you a really nice, estimate of your subjective sleep patterns. If you're someone who has a lot of difficulty sleeping, someone who may fall into an insomnia kind of symptom cluster, I would suggest tracking on pen and paper. Um, if you generally sleep well and you think maybe you're not getting enough sleep and you want to work on expanding your sleep opportunity, um, using some of the activity trackers that are out there today, I think are a very fine way to go if that's um, 
something that feels easier um, or something that you would be able to do more consistently from that basis. Terrific. And in, in terms of, um, you know, if someone's going to add more sleep, mm-hmm. uh, is it more beneficial if we think from, you know, whether it's performance or health to be adding more at night versus say getting more, um, you know, adding a nap in the afternoon to increase that total daily amount of sleep or total weekly amount? Um, has the science been able to distinguish between any superiority between uh, between the two? So they haven't been able to answer that direct question you're asking yet. Um, what we see from kind of a perspective of nighttime sleep versus naps is that if you need to catch up on sleep with a nap, in many cases, that's fine if you're able to sleep well at night, but taking a longer nap during the day tends to be associated with something called sleep inertia um, upon awakening, which is a period that can last for half an hour or even longer where you may feel physically uncomfortable. Sometimes people talk about feeling somewhat hungover, they feel like they're sluggish, they're groggy, sometimes they have nausea or a headache, um, and that their cognitive performance is actually sluggish. And that's a measurable change. There's a period of time where you have negative performance after a long nap where you have this sleep inertia. It does wear off, um, but you have to think about the cost of that when you think about building up a lot of sleep during daytime naps. Short daytime naps tend to be great in terms of being refreshing and restorative, and they don't come with that sleep inertia cost upon awakening. So with that in mind, um, I think if you can build in more sleep time at night, that tends to be um, the safest approach You keep your circadian rhythm, your body clock in line. You have a consistent sleep pattern at night. However, you know, I'm a pragmatist and I know that for some people that's just not feasible. And in those cases, you really want to look at a balance of adding in naps during the day and potentially sleeping later or going to bed earlier on weekend nights when you can. Terrific. And if, if a client or athlete is trying to chip away at that sleep and maybe adding that sort of 30 minutes, maybe 60 minutes, um, you know, would it depend if they're sort of a night person or a morning person, if they would start chipping away and say going to bed earlier versus sleeping in later to get that extra time? Yeah. Working in line with your body clock makes a lot of sense. Um, if you have that flexibility, um, I think many people who are night owls are faced with the challenge of needing to rise early, whether it's for work or practice schedules. And so it may not necessarily be feasible to be sleeping later. Although if you can sleep in line with your body clock, that's generally one of the easiest ways to add time to sleep. Um, If you need to add a little bit of time in terms of moving your bedtime earlier and you are a night person, um, it's important to make sure that you're adding in some time before you get into bed to wind down and let go of some of that activation and daytime alertness before you get into bed um, and try to extend that sleep time. And that really is a good general recommendation for anyone across the board um, as you're looking to optimize your sleep. Um, We like to pack so much into a day 
Um, and I totally get it. I fall victim to it all the time myself, but you can't really go a hundred miles an hour during the day and then hop into bed and expect to have a fabulous night of sleep. You really need to give yourself some time to wind down before you get into bed to be able to make the most of the time that you're giving yourself for sleep. Yeah. Are there any activities in particular in that sort of sleep hygiene, that one hour wind down time that uh, can really help to transition people over into a restful sleep that you know, for you are things that you tend to recommend to athletes around strategies that they could use? Yeah. I mean, one of the, the, the best recommendations is, is one of the least well-received, which is to try to be away from electronics and personal devices during that period. Um, these devices have the blue light that everybody's becoming increasingly aware of that increases activation. It suppresses and delays the release of, melatonin, which is your body's natural sleep promoting hormone. And also, you know, these devices are really um, geared to keep us engaged, keep us online. And that's a little bit at odds with this idea of having a wind down period. So as much as you can, putting the electronics away and doing some more quiet activity, whether it's reading, whether it's meditating, listening to music, doing some gentle stretching. These are all some nice lower key ways to finish out your day. Great advice. And you know, a question I always get from athletes is, you know, is a television better than the laptop if they're going to wind down and say, watch a program? So, so I think it is. Um, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that we tend to sit farther away from the television screen than we do from, you know, watching TV on a laptop or an iPad. We tend to keep that closer to our face. Um, a different type of light is emitted from the screen. Those personal devices, those laptops, those iPads have more of the blue light spectrum that has a negative impact on sleep. Um, and traditional good old fashioned TV also has all of these kind of handy commercials and other things that in general we don't like when we're watching TV, but do provide us with kind of imposed breaks from our viewing experience that I think provides us with the opportunity to really have a little more self-awareness of our own internal experience. Are we feeling sleepy? Are you winding down? Are you feeling tense? And you can you know, then change your behavior to modify that. A really interesting study came out um, earlier this year comparing, um, this was an in-lab experimental study where um, people came through the study twice in random counterbalanced order. One time they were allowed free choice reading of paper materials in the time before bed. And in the other time they came into the lab, um, they had free use of a, a tablet computer where they could be online or watch videos or play games. Um, and they looked at both things like melatonin production over the course of the night, but they also looked at subjective experiences of alertness in the evening and choices about when one went to bed. And they found that people who were on these computer tablets in the evening went to bed on average a half an hour later than those individuals who had paper materials and they also took longer to sleep and they also had less melatonin and a delayed onset of melatonin release and felt 
groggier in the morning upon awakening. And that to me was some really powerful evidence that, you know, there may be pretty broad um, effects of being on a tablet or a personal device in the evening before bed. Yeah, it's incredible how um, we sort of just become immune to it, or perhaps not immune, but uh, yeah, as you mentioned, we become unaware of how much it's stimulating us. Because I know if you know if you go camping or you go out somewhere in the wilderness where there's no you know artificial light, all of a sudden you know you get tired at nine p.m. instead of eleven thirty. You know, like there's this noticeable difference. And you think, geez, I wonder what would happen at home if I got off the computer or got off the iPad or you know. Um, so that's, that's really interesting and good to know as well, perhaps the differences there with the television being less, uh, intrusive, mm-hmm. um, and Nora with, with your work, um, in athletes as well, you know, what are potentially some common themes that come up of things that athletes are either sort of doing wrong or common obstacles or, or, um, things that you see that are potentially, you know, easy fixes or things that people could hone in on for, for clients or athletes that they're seeing in their practice. So I think this idea of having a wind down period before bed is an often overlooked area when we think about optimizing sleep. Um, You know, certainly there's the kind of doing the math and looking at kind of logistic opportunities to add time for sleep. Um, But you really also need to be looking for this buffer zone, this wind down period um, before bed. to complete that picture. I think it's also really helpful to think about um, caffeine and other stimulant use. Um, Athletes frequently use a lot of stimulants um, and certainly there can be real performance advantages of doing so when you use it strategically, but you also really want to think about strategic use with respect to sleep. Um, and so caffeine in general is fine. I love caffeine. I have coffee every morning. Um, <laughs> good to, good to know. Here, here. Couldn't, couldn't get away without it. Um, but you really need to think about the fact that caffeine has a long half-life um, between four and eight hours, depending on the person, how fast they metabolize, gender, age. A lot of factors go into that, but it's longer than a lot of people think. So the general idea of not having caffeine after lunch um, is a good one to follow um, if you want to be heading into your sleep period able to get the best sleep, which for me means sleeping without kind of the counter force of a stimulant like caffeine still being present in your body. You may choose to make exceptions of that to use caffeine strategically for a competition. And of course, that's fine. I'm really talking about this general day-to-day use and kind of caffeine habits, um, because I think that um, a lot of times that can interfere with sleep more than one might expect. Absolutely. And it's definitely something that yeah, clients who train later in the evening for personal trainers out there is definitely one with the pre-workouts for to watch out for. And um, something else that I see in my practice is, you know, you get professional athletes who will take caffeine before a game. And of course, you know, they can sleep in much later the next day, obviously, with their the schedule being all lined up. But oftentimes, you know, obviously collegiate athletes, high school athletes, if they're playing evening games and they've got to get up early the next day, then the repercussions would be a lot more significant, right? Correct. Yes, absolutely. And in those situations, you're really going to want to be thinking about, okay, what are the opportunities for naps the next day or for being able to go to bed a little bit earlier the subsequent night? Um, I think it's also helpful 
again, this is not necessarily the most exciting viewpoint, but if your base, your kind of day-to-day pattern of sleep is leaving you sufficiently rested, having a single night of poor sleep or short sleep because travel to a game, taking caffeine, and then going to bed later, you'll have less of a negative impact of that single night if it comes in the context of relatively good sleep patterns before and after. Again, it's really where you see people who are like running on the edge of not getting enough sleep that you really see the big impact of a night of really short sleep. And actually one more thing, Nora, I was going to ask you that um, I've had sort of conflicting uh, answers from different sleep experts on, on whether they sort of support the use of this or not, but it's uh, uh, the quote-unquote nappuccino, you know, the coffee and then the nap and then waking up to help prevent sleep inertia. Is that is that something that you, you know, see a, a fit for in certain circumstances or recommend or, or some drawbacks potentially? What are your thoughts? I, I think that in situations where you kind of need to be using kind of all of the cards on the table, you know, in a situation where this is a kind of challenging timing for a particular competition or a travel schedule, I think there can certainly be utility in doing that occasionally. Um, I'm not a huge fan of doing that on kind of a day-to-day basis, Um, but I do think if you need to take a longer nap or you're someone who has more sleep inertia upon awakening, even with a briefer nap, um, and you're able to take that nap early enough in the day that the caffeine isn't going to have such a negative impact on your nighttime sleep, it's certainly a reasonable thing to do. Terrific. Good stuff. That definitely dovetails with some of the suggestions I've been giving. So good to know. Good to know we're evidence-based there. Well, listen, no, I want to definitely respect your time here. So last couple questions for you. Um, This is sort of another 30,000-foot view question, but what do you think the evolution of sleep research is in the next five or ten years? Wow. I think that's an excellent question. I mean, I can think of all these different um, things that I would like to do in sleep research, but I think – one of the things that technology and a greater understanding of how sleep works will allow us to do is really get a better idea of what's happening physiologically, psychologically, with respect to performance when people are um, more slightly undersleeping. So the way that people are on a day-to-day basis in the real world, a lot of the experimental studies that have been done have been really essential proof of con- proof of concept studies where they've either not allowed people to sleep for a full overnight period, or they've restricted sleep to four hours a night for two weeks at a time. And those I think were really important studies to demonstrate the relationships but they tend to be a little bit more extreme than many of our kind of chronically undersleeping general population people. I mean, I may not get enough sleep on a night to night basis, but I'm certainly getting more than four hours of sleep on a night to night basis. So I think that the next generation of research is both going to allow us to understand in a more nuanced way what's happening when we're not getting quite enough sleep with respect to impact on health and performance. And I think in a second arm, we're also going to be able to understand um, 
in a more refined way, this area of individual differences, because it does look like some people may be more resilient to the impact of not getting enough sleep and some people may be more vulnerable. Um, and right now we don't really understand how to tell or what's going on kind of underlying in a physiological way, because I think if we can understand the physiology of some of those resilient people, we may be able to, to help some other people who aren't quite as resilient to not getting enough sleep. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff, especially obviously around the individualization and just that nuanced approach of um, that that minimal amount that we're not getting. What are the effects there? And I, I've actually read, I'm not sure if this is true or not, but you know, CEOs or you know, top executives tend to be more on the side of needing less sleep per night, and therefore they, you know, one of the reasons they're able to be so productive is they might need less sleep than the person next to them. Uh, have you come across anything to that extent, or is that? Um. You know, I think my, so my graduate school advisor um, has, I think it's probably still on the table. I haven't talked to him about it recently, but he used to have an open challenge on the table to any CEO, because this is a very, I think, common kind of, at least anecdotal presentation For to sure. any CEO to come into his lab and to be kind of restricted to only four hours of sleep a night and to do these performance tests and to show that they really were unimpaired um, by not getting very much sleep and Unsurprisingly, he's never had anyone accept that challenge. Um, so it might so, just be a war stories from the CEOs to, you know, it's hard to know. I mean, I think, you know, when you talk to like medical residents, like surgical residents who, um, really have periods where they're not getting enough sleep and have to perform at very high, critically high levels doing surgery. I, I think that people who end up succeeding and doing well and liking being in that area probably tend to be people who are more resilient to the impact of sleep loss. Um, uh, so sure. you, 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 I think can see some potential parallels with CEOs, but I think you also see a lot of use of what we call countermeasures of caffeine use of having a very stimulating environment being on go, go, go all the time. So you're not necessarily noticing how sleep deprived you are because you've really overactivated your arousal system. Um, so I think it's hard to tell how much is this kind of underlying low sleep need because data suggests that those people are really actually pretty infrequent in the population and how much gotcha. of this is like a, a lifestyle factor. Um, and I do, I do want to add Mark in this discussion, we've been really focusing, I think, a lot on this idea of insufficient sleep and how it's important to make sure that you're thinking about optimizing your sleep patterns in terms of getting enough time for sleep. Um, but I also want to just put out the kind of additional perspective that there's increasing data that a lot of athletes have some sleep disruption, some symptoms of insomnia or actual insomnia or other sleep disorders that interfere with um, their ability to sleep well. Mm -hmm. So it is in some ways, a dual approach that the first step really is making sure that you're not doing things that interfere with your sleep, using caffeine at the wrong times, being kind of really engaged with a device late at night and that you're protecting enough time for sleep. But if you're doing these things and you're finding that 
you're not able to sleep as much as you think that you need to, or you are getting a lot of sleep and you really are feeling crummy during the day, um, I absolutely would encourage your audience to speak to a healthcare provider about getting evaluated for a potential sleep disorder. Because the good thing about sleep disorders is that many of them are very treatable, oftentimes without using medication. Um, and so when we think about optimizing sleep, it's both making sure that the things that you're doing are promoting good sleep, but it's also making sure that you are identifying and addressing any sleep disorders that may be present. Terrific. That's uh, definitely great advice and something that people need to keep their eye out for. If, as you mentioned, you know, getting feel like you're getting enough of those total hours, but just uh, still feeling fatigued and, and, and run down, et cetera. And maybe that dovetails into here my last question for you, Nora, which is, mm-hmm. you know, for athletes and athletic performance, um, you know, what's one, what's one piece of advice that you would give um, to improve sleep quality or quantity? Mm. Wow. So I think the answers to that may be separate answers. I think for sleep quality, the most, probably the most important thing is to try to go to sleep with a quiet mind, which I realize is easier said than done. Um, but having an active mind being engaged on anxious, thinking about the day as you're heading into sleep, I think has a real negative impact on sleep quality. Um, and for sleep quantity, My best advice is to take a look at your life and plan how much time that you want to allocate for sleep and then to find out how to fit that in and really do some planning and work out a schedule um, rather than kind of every day feeling tired, feeling sleepy, feeling like you need to get more sleep and then at the end of the day, having 25 things that you need to do before you go to bed and up, it's another day when you haven't gone to bed early as you want to. Yeah. I mean, that's great. Yeah. Reverse engineer, start with a sleep and work outwards from there. I think is great. Cause that's definitely the scenario that I think a lot of, you know, most people are in obviously student athletes, athletes in general, feeling like you haven't finished everything in a day. So fantastic, mm-hmm. fantastic advice. Um, Nora, thanks again for, for carving out the time today. Where can people stay connected with you and keep up with all your fantastic work? Um, that's a great question. Uh, anyone's welcome to visit the website for our program at Stanford and we can be found at www.insomnia.stanford.edu. Fantastic. We'll definitely include, uh, some of the papers that we discussed here in the show notes, as well as that link at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. Uh, thanks again, everyone else, for tuning in. If you have any questions for Nora or want to leave a comment on today's episode, uh, I'd love to hear from you. So you can reach out on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Dr. Bubs. Of course, if you enjoy the show, please take a minute, subscribe on iTunes, YouTube, or your favorite podcasting platform. Fantastic. Thanks again, everyone, and see you guys all next week. The Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcasts.